You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Amen. Well, hey, before I go on, I want to say this real quick, even as we close our prayer with amen. Maybe most of you guys know this, maybe you don't, I confess. Uh, it was only a few years ago that I think I learned this. Um, and so I'm going to ask this for any kids that are in the room. I don't, I don't know if my kids are here. So not adults. Don't answer if you're an adult. Um, even if you're a child at heart or you want to qualify it of some craziness, nonsense like that. Do any of the kids know what the word amen means? What does it mean? Did you forget? That's okay. What does it mean? That is absolutely, that is right, absolutely, at its core, at its basis, the Greek word literally, you'll find it in your scripture, means true, truly. Uh, if, you're, if you're like a King James person, maybe you remember Jesus constantly saying, verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? If I preached like that, you guys would pay so much more attention. Um, yeah, he says truly, truly. And the reason I bring that up is just as we're singing the words that Brett led us through, and Brett, thank you so much for each week leading us into the presence of our God. We sing these great truths of Jesus, and then we sing amen. And what we're singing and praising and declaring is, hey, did you guys hear that crazy stuff we just sang about? Totally true. How amazing is that? It's true, it's true, it's true. When we get done praying, and we declare both the posture and desires of our heart and the truth of who our God is to respond, we, we end with amen because we end with God. It's true. Your goodness, your grace, your mercy is true. I, I should stop there and, and hop down off my soapbox. Are you guys going to be here? It's going to be like a Baptist revival up in this mug. And we'll be here for like another two hours. So hopefully someone brought fried chicken. Because that would be great. All right, so we are in John 1, and we are continuing on as we walk through the Gospel of John, and we're in this kind of sub-sermon series that we're calling In the Beginning. It's the, it's the foundations of the Gospel of John that the Gospel writer gives to us, all right? And as I said when I introduced it, just make a point of clarification, the Gospel writer John is introducing us to a man named John. It's not the same man, all right? Uh, John does this beautiful thing. All the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call John, this John that we're reading about, John the Baptist. The gospel writer John just calls him John, and he refers to himself with this beautiful little moniker of the disciple whom Jesus loved. All right, here's my, this is, this is an aside. We're not even in the sermon. This isn't even the introduction yet, okay? Take that home. And next time you feel shame and guilt, look yourself in the mirror and remind yourself that that title is true of you. That you are, just like the Gospel writer John, able to truly say, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. But let's talk about John 1, 19 through 34. So if you guys have been here before, you know that one of my favorite authors in the entire world is Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Uh, I tend to read uh, two sets of his books at least once a year. So I'll read 
all of the Chronicles of Narnia, which a lot of people have read. Amazing. And then I read the Space Trilogy that he has, which many people have not read. And if you have not, you are missing something. So go, look it up, read it, enjoy it. But of the Chronicles of Narnia, probably my favorite book of all is the very last one called The Last Battle. Now, the last battle, without trying to recap the entire book, ends when there is a great war between uh, men and, and women and beasts of the world that have risen up in support of their true king, Aslan. The, the Christ figure, if you will, of the Chronicles of Narnia. And they are battling against those who would both defame his name and would desire to see Aslan and all of his rule and reign done away with in the world. And at the very end of that battle, Aslan returns, and when he returns, he establishes a true and better Narnia. A, a, a place of glory and eternity. right? It, it gives the reader, and, and I can be drawn to tears, a picture of what eternity will look like for us when Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Well, in the midst of this establishing of this new heavens and new earth, those that have, have defied Aslan are cast out and do not enter into this new kingdom, this glorious place. And those that have loved him are ushered into this glorious new land. But there's a, a third set of characters in the book. A group of dwarves that did not fight against Aslan and they did not fight for Aslan. They, they had this, this refrain that they would yell, the dwarves are for the dwarves. They didn't care for Aslan. They didn't really care about him. They didn't care about those fighting against him. They were only for their own protection, their own comfort. Well, they end up in the new heavens and the new earth, but they can't tell that they're there. In this new world that Aslan is leading his people into, this new eternal country, a land of joy and peace and rest, these dwarves are huddled together in a small group seated on the ground, and all they can see around them is not the beautiful dawning of a new world, but utter darkness. They can't see the sun, they can't see the flowers, they can't see the trees, they can't see the joy that is all around them. They can't see that the war has ceased, that night has ended, and that pain and death are no, no more and the long-awaited kingdom has come. They're trapped in fear and isolation and misery. They haven't been given eyes of faith to truly see what's going on. Now here's why I tell you that story. Because this idea of seeing, of vision, of eyes of faith is all through the gospel accounts. And it is a major theme when it comes to the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to usher in. If you read the gospel accounts, one of the most prominent miracles of Jesus is him opening the eyes of blind men and women. We're constantly told in the scriptures that Jesus sees things and people that the disciples don't see. 
that they miss, that they overlook. In John's Gospel, when he calls the first disciples, one of the first promises that he makes to them is that one day they will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension to heaven, one of the newest, most prominent disciples of Jesus, a man named Stephen, while he is being stoned to death, we are told, God opens his eyes so that he might see into heaven. That he might see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. To know Jesus, to be a part of the kingdom of Christ, is to have our vision, true vision, restored to us. It's to be able to see clearly. And our mission is to help others to see clearly as well. Today, as we continue on in the Gospel of John, we're introduced in detail to the ministry of John the Baptizer. And as we watch him, as we hear his story, it becomes clear that God has given him vision. Vision to see him. Vision to see what he has done and what the Lord is doing upon the earth. He is a messenger sent from God. And all messengers must see clearly who the Lord is. They must see clearly what He has done and they must see clearly what He is still doing. So today, as we look at John the Baptizer, I want us to see three ways that messengers of the Lord are meant to see. First, they have a vision of God's glory and our humility. A vision of God's glory and our humility. Second, they have a vision of the heart of the Gospel. A vision of the heart of the Gospel. And finally, they have a vision full of Jesus. A vision full of Jesus. Let's begin with a vision of God's glory and of our humility. The Gospel writer begins the testimony of John the Baptist this way. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him again, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? This would be the prophet that Moses declared would come. And he answered, no. So they said to him, then who are you? We need an answer to give to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John, the Gospel writer John, ends his prologue, the beginning of his gospel, and he enters into the account of Jesus' first week of public ministry that John recounts. And it is an action-packed week. It's a week that begins here with the questioning of John the baptizer and ends with one of my favorite miracles recorded in all the gospels, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. And many of John's themes, big themes that he's going to develop over the next 21 chapters are first communicated here in this first week of Jesus' 
ministry. We're going to be introduced to Jesus as the one who bears away our sins. We're going to learn the importance and what it truly means to follow Jesus as His disciple. And John will make it utterly clear, even from this first week, exactly who Jesus is, that He is the Savior that humanity has long awaited for. But the first week of Jesus' public ministry, these first words, they don't even necessarily seem to center on Jesus. Instead, we are reintroduced to John the Baptizer. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we read about John first in verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light who we know is Jesus. John was baptizing Jewish men and women. His fame had increasingly grown, and it's likely here in this passage that John is in an area just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And so the Sea of Galilee uh, would have been one of the primary places that most of Jesus' earthly ministry takes place. And so he oftentimes is encamped in a town called Capernaum, which is on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. John is southeast at this point in time, and he has a number of visitors that show up to him asking the question, who are you? And in fact, their question, whether or not it it was specifically asked this way, was more central to, are you the Messiah we have waited for? Now the word Messiah, or the word Christ, that we oftentimes attach to Jesus is not his last name. It's a title. It literally means anointed one, the king. It is the, the, the one that all of God's people had been waiting for. First promised, quite honestly, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and the curse befalls the land, and the Lord God says to the serpent, one day, even though there is enmity, strife, war between you and humanity, one day I will send one born of a woman who will crush your head. Actually, he says, you'll bruise his heel. And I don't like snakes. They're the devil. Okay? And I don't want to get bit on the heel. But if I'm going to get bit on a heel, I want the head of the snake crushed afterwards. And we're promised that Jesus will do that. And again and again and again, we are promised by God's messengers, just wait. There's one coming, a king whose throne will last forever, who will vanquish the enemy, who will establish the land of the Lord forever, who will even turn your hearts from a posture that is pointed away from God and will give you a new heart that worships Him, a spirit within you that loves the Lord. And they come and they say to John, Is that you? And the Gospel writer records John's answer in a really interesting way. It says, He, this is verse 20, John, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Isn't that a strange way to put it? Why, one, emphasize twice that John confesses? 
Right? John didn't do anything wrong for us, typically confession, right? If you uh, grew up Catholic, maybe you sat down next to a priest and you said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Or, or if, if you didn't grow up in the Catholic faith, maybe confession, uh, maybe if you didn't grow up in church, confession is like a CSI thing. You know, there's a good cop and a bad cop and you're on the other side of the table and they lean forward and they go, you killed him, didn't you? And you're like, yes. I don't know what happened, but I did it. I must have. Right? For confession, for us, it's this guilty, shameful thing. But John has done nothing. So why is, why is the Gospel writer so insistent that, that John is confessing that he is not the Christ? Well, if you've been with us at Mercy's Door uh, for a long enough time, you've heard us try and reframe some of these Christian words that we use, including the word confess. Confess is not primarily about guilt. The root word for confession is actually about agreeing with God. When we confess, what we say to the Lord is, God, you know. And now I'm telling you, I know. I know that you know and you're right. So when we confess sin, what we say to the Lord is, God, you know that I am a sinner. And in my confession, I am agreeing with you. I'm saying, yes, I see it, God. And so when John is confessing, what he's doing is agreeing with God. He's saying, not primarily to the priests and the Levites, but to God Himself. God, I see who I truly am and I see who You truly are. I am not the Messiah. I am not the King. I am not the hope of Your people. I'm a man of dust. From dust was I formed, and to dust shall I return. John, in his confession, admits that he sees the glory not of him, but of God. And he sees the humble nature of himself. I mean, this is John's big opportunity, right? Like here, the religious rulers are sent to him, and, and, and masses of men and women are starting to follow him, and they're coming out from all over the place to see this wild-eyed man that's, that's camped out in the wilderness, and they come out and they say, are you the Messiah? And John goes, I'm not the Messiah. Okay, okay, that would be a leap too far. Right? John's not the Messiah. He doesn't need to say that. Okay. But then they go, but are you Elijah? In, in the, the prophet in the book of Malachi, it's promised that Elijah, a prophet, this great prophet of Israel, would return to God's people. And so they say, is that you? Are you Elijah? And, and, and here's the crazy part. Do you know who Jesus refers to John as? One like Elijah. And so certainly, John, take that title. I mean, take what's owed to you. And what does John say? No, I'm not him. But are you the great prophet that Moses promised that would come, that would be like him, that would, that would mediate between God and man? John says, no. What's he doing here? Well, what he's doing is he's seeing himself and he's seeing the Lord rightly. He knows that the people of God long for hope. Long for a hero. 
long for a Savior and they will latch on to any opportunity that they have. And John is saying, do not look to me nor any other man for hope because there is coming One who is even now amongst you whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. Don't look to me for hope. Look to Him, Jesus, for hope. See, messengers have to be captivated. But you can only truly be captivated by one person in your life. You will find only one person in your life truly glorious. And for John, he didn't find himself glorious. He didn't find any other man or woman or child glorious. He found the Lord glorious, big, weighty, important, of the most utter value. You know, C.S. Lewis gives one of the best definitions to humility I've ever heard. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not woe is me. It's not recounting and dwelling on all of your failures. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Ask any parent of a newborn child what their eyes, their minds, their hearts are consumed with. It's someone else. A new bride or a new husband. It's someone else. For John, he was consumed with a vision of God's glory. And so let me ask you this, because we are all called as messengers of the Gospel. Whose glory are you captivated with? Are you captivated by our God's greatness? Maybe here's another and better test. Does your heart swell with pride and celebration as much when the Lord is given glory as when you are given praise? If not, then we've settled for something cheap. A substitute. Because you nor any other man or woman can bear the weight of true greatness only our God is. And when we believe that we are as great as God, we fall right back into the same trap that betrayed humanity in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Believing that we are like Him when we are not. A messenger must have a vision of the glory of God and our humility. But a messenger must also have a vision of the heart of the Gospel. The story goes on down in verse 29. It says this, The next day, he, John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. 
Because He was before me. He's talking about what John said, that Jesus is the eternal Word of God, was in the beginning. He goes on, he says, I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that He, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. You know, we're told in the other Gospels that, that John had actually met Jesus at least one time long before this time. Jesus and John are likely both in their 30s here in this passage, but we're told about the day when John the baptizer's mother, Elizabeth, is pregnant with John, and she encounters Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is pregnant with Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, I need to caffeinate. That's good. Amen. It's true. Elizabeth, pregnant, Mary, pregnant, come together as Mary is going to stay with Elizabeth. And we're told in Luke that John, in utero, leaps when he first encounters Jesus, the Savior of the world. What a beautiful picture of life in its first stages. John, we're told, filled already with the Spirit, even in his mother's womb, meets Jesus, and all he can do is worship. It's been several years since that point. Thirty. Three decades at least. We don't know the relationship between John and Jesus since that point, but somehow we know that John sees Jesus and what he has come to do clearly. He sees Jesus and he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is not a phrase that's found elsewhere in Scripture. It appears that John, quote-unquote, invents this phrase here, on the spot, when he sees Jesus. It's probably a combination of a number of biblical pictures, maybe three or four, that John here helps to kind of encapsulate together in order to describe the magnitude of who Jesus is and what He's come <clears throat> to do. Likely, John is alluding to the lamb or goat that Abraham takes up on Mount Moriah where he carried his son Isaac, or he went with his son Isaac in order to sacrifice him. But instead, God sends and provides another to be sacrificed in his place. He's probably also referring to the Passover lamb. The lamb that the people of God slaughtered whose blood they hid under to ensure that judgment did not fall on them. He's probably also referring to the Lamb that Isaiah prophesied about that would one day suffer in Israel's place. And he's also probably referring to the lambs that were daily sacrificed as offerings as a part of the Levitical code that these Levites and priests that were sent to him would know all about. John uses this phrase 
to tell men who would know exactly what he was talking about, who Jesus truly was. I mean, think about it for a second. These priests would see hundreds, thousands potentially of lambs that were brought in, killed, and sacrificed. They knew what they looked like. They knew what they sounded like. They knew what they smelled like. It would have been a a visceral, all-consuming kind of sense when they heard John say the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for God who takes away the sin of the world. But John says here is the better Lamb, the greater Lamb, who will take not just the sins of one man or one family for one day, but who will take away, bear away the sins of the entire world. See, John is describing Jesus in a way that tells us that John didn't just know about Jesus, but he knew Jesus. Or that John didn't just know about the Gospel. But he knew the Gospel. He understood deeply man's dreadful position. He understood deeply our desperate need. He understood deeply the power of Christ and the enormity of what Jesus had come to do. He didn't just simply recite some Scripture. There's nothing wrong with reciting Scripture. Do it! Again and again. But it wasn't truth out here that John was reciting. It was truth in here. That in a moment, he could take the heart, the truth, what the Gospel was really about and communicate it to men who didn't know anything about it. You know, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Rachel, my wife, she suffers from migraines and we got to see a neurologist. And he prescribed some medications and, and I don't think that neurologist had, to my knowledge, ever suffered from chronic migraines. And so he, he, he prescribed some medication. He kind of went over the, the listed side effects, right? And so we went and we said, okay, it's good. We know a little bit from him about this medication. But after we left, we called my sister, who also suffers from headaches and had been on a very similar medication. We said to her, hey, tell us about it. And, and she didn't read off the label, you know, like you may, you know, have itchy ears and... You know, one effect of the migraine medication is that you might get migraines, which always blows my mind why the side effects are always the exact same thing you're trying to treat. But another sermon, another day. But she, she could give us real insight because she, she knew it. She'd taken it. She'd taken it within herself. She'd experienced it. John wasn't reading off the, the medicine label about the gospel. He didn't see Jesus and go, let me see, who is this? Oh, this is, uh, oh yeah, it says right here, Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. You guys should take a look at that guy. <laughs> right, like John's heart bursts forth. I know who that is. Who is it? Who is this guy? It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's a difference between knowing about the gospel and knowing the heart of the gospel. And a messenger must not just know about his kingdom. He must be from it. He must know its beauty 
and its glory, and he must know intimately how to get there. In that same book, The Last Battle, there's a character named Jewel the Unicorn, a talking unicorn. And when he finally enters into Aslan's country, he says this beautiful line. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land that I have always been looking for and yet up till now never quite knew it. See, when we talk about the gospel, we don't talk about a country we are heading towards. We're not talking about a truth that one day we will experience. We're talking about where we now truly belong. Let me pause and make a small aside here because I read something in a commentary that I hated. Later on in John's ministry, he's going to be imprisoned. And when he's imprisoned, awaiting his death, he sends word back to Jesus and he says to him essentially this, are you really the one that we waited for? Or should we wait for someone else? One of the commentators said, John couldn't have truly understood the gospel because later on, in a moment of fear and panic, he doesn't believe. And I have to tell you this, this is a smart man, PhD, I will take his commentary almost any time, and I will declare to you loudly, he is utterly wrong. Because our faith is not resting on our knowledge or our information or our will Our faith is a gift that is given to us by our Heavenly Father and that even with knees buckling and doubts overwhelming us, it doesn't mean that the faith faith isn't truly ours. And quite honestly, as much as John knew Jesus, what was far more important is that Jesus knew John. He knew the heart of the Gospel. And he would forget it. And he would be reminded of it. And that's why we live in community with one another. So that in the day when the Lord gives us great faith, we might declare to our brothers and sisters the heart of the gospel. And when doubts and fears overwhelm us, they might lean in close to us and remind us of who Jesus truly is. John had a vision for God's glory and his humility. He had a vision for the heart of the gospel. And finally, he had a vision full of Jesus. The story ends this way. John says, the next day, he was standing, he looked, and he declared, behold, the Lamb of God. And as he was doing that, as he declares this, John then says this, starting in verse 32, and John bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I remember intimately the night when I first laid eyes on my bride, we were at a Christmas play. Well, we, 
I was at a Christmas play that she was helping with at a church. And uh, my parents had gone to this church. It wasn't my church. I don't even know what I was doing there. Um, I assume that God, in his providence and grace, had made my parents drag me there. So, by the way, kids, listen to your parents. You may never get married. Moral of the story. That's not true. That's, but listen to your parents. Because good things come. That's in Scripture. I go there, and there's this woman. And I'm like, this is the best Christmas parade play ever. Right? I don't know what happened. I don't know what anybody else said, but great play. Five stars. Apparently, she was dating some guy. Whatever. Not important. I don't remember that guy's name. Six months later, we finally went on our first date. Six months after that, we got married, and 15 years later, we are still married. Since that first day, my eyes have figuratively and literally been filled with her beauty. I get to wake up next to her, and she's the first one I see in the morning. Right? She's the, the, the eyes that mine connect with when something silly or shocking or, or hurtful happens. She's the eyes I look for when I don't understand what's going on or I'm anxious or afraid. My vision is filled with her. John here tells us that his vision is filled with Jesus. He recalls the first day he quote-unquote met the Messiah. The first day that he knew because of what the Father had told him to look for that this was the one that he had spent his whole life anticipating. His eyes fixed on Jesus and he knew exactly who he was. And we're told that this first vision of Jesus doesn't go away. It lasts for the rest of John's life. It changes him. Where once he had been proclaiming the need for repentance because a Savior would one day come, now his message to the entire world is he has come. And he's right there. And my eyes are fixed on him and they will never leave him. You know, I, I am by nature and by my former profession a people watcher. Right? When I am out in public, I, I tend to take in as much information around me as I can. My father is this same way, again, by nature and profession. Uh, when we go out to restaurants, he always has to sit with his back away from the door, which is annoying to me because that means I have to sit with my back towards the door and I can't see everything. Right? And it's a good thing most of the time to be a people watcher, to always have your vision all around you, taking in as much as possible. But you know when the worst time for that to happen is? When I drive. When I drive, my vision drifts all over the place. Rachel, I just paid you a compliment. Okay? Remember I said you were beautiful. Go easy on me. See, here's the, here's the bad part when my vision drifts while I'm driving. When my vision drifts, you know what else drifts? The car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all the men said amen. Okay? We're just trying to keep you safe. That's why the car is drifting. 
because we're taking in everything, okay? Our car may run onto the shoulder, but we'll know if a deer is going to hit us from the side, okay? (laughs) See, that's just what happens with vision. Wherever your vision is, you'll go that direction. Your life will go that direction. Your actions will go that direction. A messenger will go, will proclaim, will give his life over to whatever his vision is captivated by. And so for us as messengers of Jesus, our vision must be captivated by Jesus. Because when it's not, our lives will drift. Our hearts will drift. Our affections will drift. People, when I grew up, used to tell me all the time, hey, you got to have that daily quiet time in the morning. And I'm like, listen, one, I struggle to get out of bed. Two, when I'm eating my cereal, I'm watching Saved by the Bell. i got to find some time in there. I don't know where it's going to go. Right? And I just always thought, like, you'll never be a good Christian until you have that morning quiet time. You know what they were actually saying? You can't make it through a day without your eyes being cast on Jesus first. Because if they're not, you know what my eyes will be cast on? All the things I've got to do. All the people I have to impress. All the things I failed at yesterday that I need to reconcile. All the opportunities that I have today to finally be the type of guy that I want to be. Scripture tells us again and again and again in the morning, have your eyes captivated with the steadfast love of the Lord and by night be reminded of His faithfulness. Eyes filled with with Jesus. You know, a couple years ago, my, uh, my mom's dad passed away, and uh, we, big family, but I was a military brat, and so we didn't live close to them very much. Uh, but when the funeral took place, they asked me to deliver the eulogy at the funeral, and my response was, why? Um, I, I didn't know him, like a lot of his grandkids and kids knew him, but you know, Pastors, they show up to a dinner party, they're going to say the prayer, you show up to a funeral, you're going to speak at some point in time. And so I, I, I really read the eulogy that was developed by other people. I proclaimed it. I spoke it. But about a year later, Noah and I went up north to where they live in Michigan, and, and we spent the night with my grandmother. And uh, I stayed up late that night, just chatting with her, and a year or two later, from the funeral, and, and she just told a thousand stories of my grandfather. A thousand stories of my grandfather. And she didn't just tell stories. She told stories with the most specific details in them. What he was wearing that day, and, and the sounds that she heard, and the emotions that she was feeling. See, I, I stood up to tell everybody about my grandfather, But I didn't know him like she knew him. Her vision was filled with him. And because of that, the only thing that could come out of her was not a cold, distant, factual telling, but a love song, a poem about the beauty of him. Messengers must have vision. C.S. Lewis, that same author I've referenced, He said his life was dedicated to the pursuit of one thing, joy. 
And he wrote this about joy one day. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Joy is not complete until it is expressed. It is not complete until it's shared. Listen, I can preach this sermon a totally different way. And I can give you the nuts and bolts of how to be a messenger. I can tell you the words you've got to speak and the way you've got to speak them and with what boldness you've got to speak them and to whom you have to speak them to. But I will tell you right now that if you experience the joy of Jesus, if you have a vision for the gospel, you will share it. You will be a messenger because your joy will not be complete until you tell others about it. This is the role of a messenger. Now, church, I want to tell you about an opportunity that we have coming forward to be a church of messengers. Many of you guys this past week in your gospel community may have heard, but we as a church are multiplying when we planted Mercy's Door, we committed to being a church plant that plants churches. That we didn't just want to plant one church and then build and build and build and build, but we saw from Scripture itself that the mode by which the gospel goes out is by new churches being planted and those new churches planting other new churches. And so our first year as a church, we supported church plants to 10% of our budget. Last year, it was almost 20%. But it wasn't just finances that we wanted to give. We wanted to actually be a church that sends out. And while we prayed last year and the year before, and we thought we had a vision for what the Lord was going to do to send out some of our leaders, at the end of last year, the Lord closed a bunch of those doors. And so we started to play, uh, pray again, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to be a church that doesn't just keep the gospel within, but is so captivated by your beauty that we are sending out. And so this summer, we are going to plant another church. And we're not just going to send out some people. Uh, we are going to send out, hopefully by God's grace, many people. But some of those people will be Rachel and I and our family. And it's not us leaving to go to another church. It's us trying to walk out what we actually believe in the gospel. And we believe that, one, this is not anybody's church other than Jesus' church. He is your senior pastor. Not me. It's never been me. I'm an under-shepherd. I follow the chief shepherd and invite you to follow along with me. This is Jesus' church. And we're also testifying to the fact that this life is but a vapor. It is short, but eternity is long. And the Lord has prepared good works for us and we want to, us, and we want you to walk in them. And so Pastor Adam, who is also one of our teaching pastors, is going to be stepping into the lead teaching role as I transition out. And Mercy's Door is going to, by God's grace, send us out 
with prayer and support and by God's grace, people as well. We're going to be planting another place that is kind of a second home to us where Rachel and I's family started. We're also partnering with our sending church. Uh, The lead pastor from that church is also being sent out and they are going with us. Uh, They happen to be from the state of Texas which is where Rachel and I's family started, and so that is where we're going to plant the next church because we're not smart enough to just, you know, stop in anywhere. Uh, We tend to look for low-hanging fruit, and so we go, God, where do we know and where does the gospel need it? Because if you combine those things, then Jesus, you can use fools like us. And so Texas, the name of the town is Georgetown, is a place that we are both from and care about as well as a place that desperately needs the gospel and so the church is going to send us now listen this is the start of a conversation not the end of a conversation we've got months to transition well to celebrate together to anticipate what the lord is going to do to grieve change and loss which is biblical and right for us to do We told uh, our GCs this past week, and so if you were at GC, we did that because we wanted to begin the conversation like families do around the dinner table, but we also want to make sure that everyone knows this is not something where we're going to disappear one night, and you guys are going to be like, where'd Michael and Rachel go? They're in Texas now. No, we're going to ask you guys to send us out, and I'm going to be asking you, come with. Come with. Come be a part of the gospel going out. So with that, church, let me pray, and let's ask God to help us be messengers, whether here or in Texas or halfway around the world, that we might be captivated with the beauty of Christ.